Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. Um, if it's your first time joining us, whether here in person or online, we're very thankful to have you worshiping with us on this Sunday morning. Uh, we are in a sermon series this fall, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Julie mentioned um, this morning when she was doing Call to Worship that she was at a conference this week, and um, she mentioned to me the, the name of the conference, like the, the theme of it, Hit Refresh, and I thought that was a pretty cool like, way to think about, like, I think what a lot of us need in our lives right now, just like Hit Refresh. The world has been crazy for a few years now, and I think we all just kind of feel like a need to hit refresh on things. And um, I've, I've, as a church, you know, in our sermons this, this year, we've been kind of trying to do the same kind of thing, trying to figure out, like, what does it look like for us to find a mode of, like, sustainability in our lives as we kind of move forward into what feels like, in, in a lot of ways, like kind of a new, a, new, a new world in a lot of senses, just with all the things that have happened, like, things feel like they've really changed. And so we want to go back to the basics, to hit refresh on uh, what it means for us just to follow Jesus, what is kind of at the... You know, what, what, what's at the foundation of what, who we are as Christians and how can we go back to that, maybe find it anew and use that as a way to sort of walk forward uh, in, into whatever our lives look like now, nowadays. And so anyway, we're doing the Sermon on the Mount, uh, talking about what it looks like for us to live in the countercultural kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming that has come with his ministry and that we are now part of as followers of him. And so we're going to be kind of spending a lot of time going in depth on that throughout the fall. We're in, I think, sermon number four today. Um, and I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get into our passage for today. So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity, as always, that we can come together and we can worship you. We can um, gather with one another in community and fellowship. We can uh, spend time uh, learning from you, God, and really just figuring out what it looks like to follow you well in depth in a way that honors you um, and that uh, navigates the kind of uh, sometimes kind of crazy world that we live in, um, Lord. So help us to do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you uh, ever heard of something called the Dunning-Kruger effect? Okay, a few of you have. I just learned this recently, and I felt like it was one of those things that was like, oh my gosh, this so accurately describes like, my experience of things that I've seen in the world. Um, it's a graph, so all the engineers in the room, you guys will really like it, but it's one of those graphs that doesn't have real numbers. There's nothing like, actually corresponding to it. It's just kind of describing. So it's kind of good for everybody, for engineers and, and non-engineers alike. So here, here's what it is. It kind of describes... Um, just kind of our journey to really deeply understanding something, really knowing something in depth. Okay, so we're, we kind of start out with, with having no knowledge of anything, but right away we learn something about a subject and we get to the top of the peak of Mount Stupid where we think, oh, I've totally mastered this thing. I listened to a podcast that kind of talked about some issue, and now I feel like I could discourse with any expert on this thing, right? You guys have all been there, or maybe you, you are, you know, you, maybe, you know we, we've all, whether we've gone to college or we, we have a job or just we have an interest in something, we spend a lot of time studying it, we all have probably talked to people 
who you know, come to us as if they're some sort of expert on the thing, or they listen to this podcast and they know just as much as anybody else, and, and you're like, oh my gosh, you do not know nearly as much as you think. You are, you are high on confidence, but you are very low on competence. All right? And as you start to study something, you start to realize, oh, maybe I don't know this thing as well as I thought. And you kind of you know, fall all the way down to the valley of despair. But over time, as you kind of are willing to keep learning about this thing and you have humility, you kind of can move up the slope of enlightenment to the plateau of sustainability. Right? Um, I think that's, that's helpful. I, I feel like I've been on that at many different things in my life, and I definitely have, have met people uh, like that as well. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, I think I might have shared this in a sermon once in the past. It's so good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. Was this meme I saw uh, from a few months ago? Um, you know, like a lot of people on social media, this was their journey, right? Okay, I listened to a podcast on this thing, or I spent a little time thinking about it, and now I'm an expert on, <laughs> on this thing, right? We, we all kind of have, you know, maybe it's not that, but you, we've seen stuff like that, and, and it's, it's, it's just kind of, yeah, we, it's, it's a good reminder that, like, the journey to really knowing something, it takes a long time. And we have this tendency to kind of learn something on the surface level, Right, but then we operate as if we've mastered it. And this Dunning-Kruger effect is, or just kind of this chart shows us that actually that's not really how it works. Um, it, it, it takes the, the path to truly knowing something in depth and living it out in our lives is not a short thing. It's actually a very a long thing. It can take a very long time. An essential part of, you know, of that is us having the humility to always seek to learn more constantly, always feeling like we can be growing or learning more in some subject. Now, in the kingdom of God, this thing that Jesus has announced has come to earth and is coming to earth more and more in his ministry, Jesus is looking for people who are humble enough to go to continually greater depths to understand how they can align their lives with this kingdom and fulfill uh, what, what New Testament scholar Richard Hayes says, the, the, the deepest truth of the law and the prophets. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, is kind of uh, pushing the boundaries of what people thought that they knew on the law and what it meant to follow God and saying, this is far deeper than you thought it was. And the deep truth is this. Julie talked about this a lot last week as she sort of kind of went into the weeds a little bit on the law and what it meant for Jesus to be fulfilling it but also challenging it or reinterpreting it in different ways. Jesus is less concerned with what you show and he is more concerned with what God is causing you to become deep down and what your actions reveal about who you are deep down. Not trying to present something that isn't actually true of you, but actually representing you know, who God is making you as you become more and more like Jesus on the inside. Now, in making this point, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets a very high standard. Okay? If you want to know, really know what to shoot for, he says, this is where you should start. This is in verse 48 of chapter 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so talk about going deeper, right? That is def- that's Mariana's Trench deep right there. Okay, that is not the kind of thing that is going to be easy for us to get to. And in fact, I, I think it's supposed to be kind of clearly unattainable. I don't think Jesus is actually expecting us to get there, to be perfect like God. I, I don't think him saying that is, is saying, you know, you need to actually get here. This is what I'm actually expecting of you. 
Hey, as your pastor, I'm actually freeing you to not be crushed by that verse, but to kind of understand what I think is going on, what Jesus is actually saying here. I think it's supposed to be so unattainable that it leaves us always pressing deeper, always going deeper in what it means for us to follow Jesus. It's, it's a present reminder of our weakness, even in our greatest triumphs, that we are still falling short of this high standard that Jesus has set out for us. And it's, 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 it's challenging us to push, push past the, the surface level knowledge or goal that we often try to settle with. Right? A lot of times when it comes to following Jesus, we're content to kind of, you know, stay right at the very beginning of that Dunning-Kruger effect, right? And think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm following Jesus pretty well, right? We, we kind of are like, what, what's like, what's the podcast version of what it means to follow Jesus? Let me know that and I'll do it and I'll let other people know I'm doing it and then I can kind of, you know, hit, the cru- hit cruise control on that and kind of quit thinking so deeply about what it means to actually follow Jesus well. And by putting the standard out for us, I think Jesus is pushing us beyond that sort of shallow mindset that we can so often have with things. To seek a lifetime of spiritual formation and growth, to, to not be content, even though we are secure in faith in Jesus, in, our, in the grace that God has given to us. We don't have to worry about losing that because we're falling short of this expectation, but it's also a challenge for us to be humble, to repent, to not coast on maybe one season of growth that we had at one point in our lives, but to kind of continually be going deeper. And so Jesus picks a few specific things to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, in the passage we're talking about today, and then also next week, on what true depth of living them out looks like. And, and these are really radical interpretations of the law that he's giving us, meaning if we're going to really live it out, we're going to be always asking ourselves what it means for us to grow in this more and more. Okay, so today we're going to talk about those four things, uh, four of those six things. We'll get to the, the, the other two next week, like I said, but reflections on fulfilling our kingdom ideal in regards to hatred, lust, divorce, and oaths. These are the four things that Jesus picks to talk about in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to really dig into those things. And as we've been doing throughout this series, we're going to be having a question and response time at the end of the sermon. So if you have a question about anything, um, you can go to our website, redcitychurch.org. Uh, if you just scroll down a little bit from the top on your phone, there's should be a place for you to enter in a submit a question uh, into that, and if we we might not get to all of them afterwards, we'll try to get to two or three of them after the service today. Um, but I'll do my best to respond to them. Okay, I'm not sure I'll answer them, but I'll try to give some response or thought, or try to maybe point you in a direction of something you could continue to study uh, or go towards if you wanted to get into it in depth. Now, on this stuff, on this section of uh, the Sermon on I remember once I was talking to someone who was very interested in Christianity. He, he wasn't from America, so he hadn't kind of grown up exposed to uh, Christianity in the way a lot of people in America are for different reasons. And, and we were reading Matthew together as kind of a way for him to learn who Jesus was. And we came to this section, and he never read these. And I remember we read through them, and he turned to me, and he was like, these are hard, <laughs> His response is like, wow, this, is, this does not seem like an easy thing for us to do. And it was a good reminder to me that following Jesus, it is supposed to be radical, right? These, these commands that he gives here, they are supposed to elicit that response from us. Like, they're not supposed to be things we think, cool, I can do that. 
I can take the podcast version level of that and kind of become an expert in this thing, right? I, and I I'll hit cruise control after that and I'll kind of, you know, ride on it pretty easily, okay? If we don't have that reaction of, whoa, these are hard, I actually would, would say, I don't think we're really reading them. I don't think we're really grappling with what Jesus is actually saying here. Julie likes to tease me because I don't notice things around the house. Like she was gone this week at this conference and she had a, a pot of some flowers out front of the house and um, they kind of were on their way to dying already, but they finished dying this week. <laughs> and Julie's like, how did you not like think to put water on these? And I was like, I honestly didn't even notice them when I got home. Like I just walked up to the door. All I was thinking about was getting the right key on my, on my key ring and opening the door and going inside because like, that's how my brain works, right? There's just a lot of stuff around the house like, I don't notice sometimes. Like, I think she could hang, you know, new pictures in our basement and it would take me a week or two to notice them sometimes. So she likes to tease me about that um, because my mind is always on other stuff. And I think that we can be like that with these things that Jesus says here. If we've grown up hearing these things, which I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess that maybe not everyone in the room, but a lot of the people in the room are familiar with these. You've read them before, you've thought about them. I think there's a danger for us as people who regularly inhabit the Bible. Just like I live in my house, I, I am there every single day. I walk by these things, but I don't always notice them because of my familiarity with them. I think we can have that sort of, uh, you know, uh, mindset when it comes to these passages in Scripture. It can just become part of the background of our lives because of the familiarity of it. Um, just kind of, you know, getting in the way of us actually wrestling with the radical nature of these things. Okay, so as we go through them today, as I want you to reread them and allow yourself to be sort of surprised and challenged, all right? We're going to go through all four of these kind of in turn, and that will kind of be the way the sermon works, all right? We'll work, work through each of these individually, um, and then we'll wrap it up at the end. So let's start with what Jesus says about murder in Matthew 5, 21 to 26. This is the longest section that he has in, 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 this, in this passage. You have heard that it was said to the people uh, long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so Jesus is here referencing the, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments that Moses was given, the, the tablets of stone that he delivered to Israel. This is number six on there. Um, and this is how a lot of the section works. Jesus says, you've heard it said, um, and he's usually referring to a specific part of the law. There's one, I think there's one place where he isn't. Um, we can get into that maybe a little bit next week as to why he uses that formula. But he's saying to them, this is what you guys have heard. This is what you know. Everyone agrees on this. It's good not to go around murdering people. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to push your knowledge of this thing a lot deeper than it is. Okay? This command actually sits upon a deeper principle, 
Jesus is saying, than not just unlawfully killing someone. That's relatively easy to do, right? I think we could, we could say, like, it's, it's generally not a hard thing to do to go murder someone, right? You can usually go throughout your week without accidentally doing it. Okay, Jesus is saying, there's actually something a lot deeper to this. Um, and, and that's that you ought to have an urgency with dealing with your anger or your hatred towards other people. I think that's what's actually going on here. And he ends with a couple examples of what it looks like to deal with your anger in a God-honoring way. So he kind of tells you this is what you ought to do instead. But the big idea is this, kind of the, the principle behind the law that Jesus is saying is this. If you hold a certain animosity towards somebody, you have, in a sense, murdered them in your mind. Okay, murder is a decision by one person that another's life isn't valuable enough to continue living. When we hate someone to the point of saying it out loud by using certain words to describe them, we are deciding that someone's life is likewise not valuable enough to give honor to. If we call them like a moron or an imbecile or an idiot, which is kind of comparable words to the Greek word, uh, actually, I don't think it's Greek, I think it, it's um, Aramaic, but uh, raka here, which Jesus talks about, those words betray that there's something going on in our hearts in how we view the person that we're using that, or using that word towards. And anger is the key to this, okay? Now, anger is not bad, right? Jesus and God, they get angry. We can find lots of examples of that in Scripture. But at the right times, but unchecked, Jesus is saying, anger is dangerous. It makes it easier for us to not just accidentally use a slanderous word, to, to call someone, you know, uh, the equivalent of Raka or say you fool about them, but to, dis, you know, to actually believe that about them in our hearts and like, and how we view them deep down, this is how we categorize that person, right? As not having the sort of dignity that we would respect them and how we talk about them or view them. And by letting your anger allow you to speak a word like that, you are taking the first steps, I think Jesus is saying, to, to what he's talking about, to what he's speaking against, specifically murder. Now, it does seem over the top to compare murder to to this, though, right? I mean, I think that's probably our reaction, right? Again, if we're reading this with Jesus, we're supposed to have that sort of shocked reaction to this. I think that's okay to have that. And this is our first taste to Jesus' sort of radical, uh, you know, the the, the first taste to the sort of radical nature of Jesus' interpretation and summons for us. But when we really think about this, I think it actually starts to make sense. Okay, when we really think about what, what is happening here, what does it actually look like for this to not just be a word that comes out of your mouth, but to kind of go down the path, uh, you know, further and further, we actually figure out why I think Jesus is telling us to have this sort of urgency. You know, there's a lot of very popular TV shows um, where we watch like a good guy go from being a good guy uh, but having some bad luck, some kind of horrible things happen to them, all the way to the outright villain of a show um, through a series of small steps and tragedies that kind of pop up throughout the seasons of it, right? So some popular shows that kind of have these types of characters in them, um, Game of Thrones, uh, The Good Wife. I'm not seen Breaking Bad, but it's my understanding of the show is kind of dialogues this guy's descent from being a good guy to being an outright like evil villain of a person. Sorry if I spoiled that for you. Um, um, I assume if, if you've not seen Breaking Bad at this point, you're like me, you're probably never going to see it. Um, okay. Okay. But in, in some of these shows, that descent actually turns them murderous, right? You'd never think that by watching the first episode, but 
But by the end, you kind of understand the path that they went on to get them there. And it usually starts with anger at something. And in the context of the show, it might be justifiable anger. Um, But over time, unchecked, unprocessed, unforgiven, it sprouts into hatred. A view of the person or the people that wronged them as almost subhuman, subhuman as, as the villains, right? That needing to be dealt with at all costs. And, and from there, it becomes rage. And then in the right circumstance, murderer becomes a possibility in someone's mind, right? And we find that all these million little steps, you know, towards this trajectory that started with hatred um, of unresolved anger kind of leads them to that point, and there's plenty of real-world exa- real examples of this, too. Um, the, the Buffalo shooter back in May, you guys heard, you know, heard about the shooting that happened in Buffalo. Um, uh, someone kind of went to a, a grocery store and, and targeted a bunch of black people. Um, from, from what I've learned about this guy's situation, he started out as someone who was bored during the pandemic in 2020, just kind of going on different websites where these sort of, you know, very racist theories were all over. And he's seeing sort of this stuff kind of put in this heart, this fear of being replaced, and it turned into this hatred and fear of non-white people. And you can imagine the words that he started to use to describe these people, right? Maybe one word in particular, right, that he probably was using in his own discourse or talking with friends about it, and unchecked this dark and, and totally illegitimate anger grew into something much darker and much more evil than that, to the point where he saw murder not only as, as uh, necessary, but justifiable. Uh, I, I just finished an audiobook, um, kind of talking about the rise and fall of, of Nazi Germany. And I got to the section in the, in the book that kind of describes the completely horrific and evil things that the Nazi regime did to Jewish people and, and also, you know, other people beyond that, but specifically to Jewish people. And it's just horrifying stuff. It's, it's kind of unimaginable to think of not just one person, but mul- many people getting to a point where this was something that they felt like was, was a, a justifiable thing to do, that they kept getting up and doing it over and over again every day. And I remember just asking myself, like, how did it get to this point? How could it have gotten there? And then I remembered earlier in the book where you, you, you read about how the Nazis were, were stirring hate in the hearts of the German people towards Jewish people for years, Right? And you can, you, know, you can imagine the words that became normal to say in that society to describe these people and how as that festered and spread, it got to the point where this was, this was not even a question. This was a very normal thing for people in that society to be doing, where the unthinkable became possible. Jesus is saying we need to check ourselves at the start by pulling it all up at the root. Okay? I'm not saying that everyone who calls a person or a group of people you know, an idiot will commit murder, right? It's, I, I absolutely don't think that's the case. I think the vast majority of the times, that's not where it gets to. Um, but I think Jesus' point is that even, if, even a hint of those things can, with the right circumstances, the right poking and prodding, the right combo of bad days and stress, lead us to a place that we'd be shocked to find ourselves all because of what we allow to grow in our hearts and because of the nature of sin, right? Because that is the case, get rid of it at the start. If that, you know, why not cut that out of you if that's where it could potentially lead to? 
Again, it's probably not, it's, it's almost certainly not going to get there. But if it's part of, if it's the beginning of a path towards that, why would you not just cut that out of you? If that thing has sprouted into something as horrible as murder in other people, why would we want to let it fester in us? Why would we even take that chance? Why would we even let that be a part of us? Instead of letting it fester, Jesus says, be proactive. Do something else with it. Address your anger immediately. Don't wait. Go to them. Go to the people you're angry with and snuff out your anger so it doesn't lead you down a path that you don't intend to go. Okay, so that's what Jesus has to say about murder and hatred. Let's talk about what he has to say about adultery here. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here Jesus is referencing the seventh command, uh, you shall not commit adultery. And he's talking about intercourse uh, between someone married with someone that they're not married to. Um, But again, very radically, Jesus ties adultery to lust. He says these two things need to be thought of as very similar. Okay, lusting here means the desire to, to have her. He's talking about, you know, uh, you know, specifically looking at a woman lustfully. He's talking about the desire to have her in sexual intercourse. That's what he's talking about with lust. It's not attraction, but it's sort of the lingering desire birthed from that attraction. All right, so you're, you're trying the other person out in your mind, right? You're imagining what it might be like, right? You're kind of going further than just the initial noticing of the other person, but you're kind of letting that, again, linger and just seeing where it takes you, okay? I think maybe a, a similar slippery slope to what we just talked about uh, could be in view here, right? It starts with a desire, seemingly innocent, but it can often end with infidelity, with the thing that Jesus is, you know, everyone agreed in that society, this is not a good thing, right? We want to avoid this at all costs, Jesus is saying, this, this is the, his main point, if you've intentionally lusted after someone, you've opened yourself to doing far more with them if the opportunity were ever to present itself to you. Right? Again, in the right circumstances, with the right poking and prodding, if, if that's where you're at, you've opened yourself up to doing a lot more than them. Many people, again, do lust without getting ever getting to the point of adultery. Again, again, the vast majority of the time, that's what's taking place. But again, isn't that just as bad? Kind of getting to a place in your mind where, you know, uh, you're thinking about this. You're kind of willing to do it in your head. Isn't that just as bad as actually doing it? I think that's what Jesus is challenging us to think about here, right? Doesn't that violate the integrity of holiness and perfection that he's calling us to strive for, even if he knows we'll never actually meet it? Our standard so often can be, if it doesn't hurt anyone, who cares, right? We have this very sort of, you know, that's our very like low bar, that we have for things a lot of times. God wants us to have a higher standard than that. He wants us to think about things deeper than that. He wants us to have more radical understandings of what it means to follow him. And again, better to deal with it at the root than to risk it getting to the place where lives are upturned and people are hurt forever. Now again, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, this is kind of radical, right? And in the culture we live in, 
this does maybe brush up against some sacred cows, right? So let's, let's talk about that a little bit, okay? We may say, this is a repressive thing by, for Jesus to say. This is kind of, this is not a, health, you know, not a healthy thing for him to be saying this. Isn't it actually just normal and healthy for humans to, to see something, to kind of have a very normal desire for it and just unload some stress, pleasuring yourself to it? Like, that's, that's totally okay and legitimate, Jesus might agree with you, that is pretty normal, but just because it's normal doesn't mean it's good, okay? And when we really see, when we really study this, like there's a lot more information that's kind of coming out about like the effects of lust and specifically pornography on, you know, on humans, all right? There, we, when we study this, we kind of see that Jesus is actually onto something. Surprise, surprise, Okay? Porn, lust, all of that, we know it's incredibly addictive. It's, it's like when we study the brains of people who kind of have porn addictions, it looks a lot like a drug addiction. It's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of brain research on sort of the neural pathways that are created by sort of regular lust and porn intake that become incredibly hard to break. Okay? But going further than that, a recent study uh, of brain scans of men while watching porn showed that the part of the brain that lights up when watching porn is not the part that deals with people, but the t- part that deals with objects. Think about that. Think about what's going on inside of the head of a person then who is doing that intentional lusting. They're not seeing the person as a real person, as an image bearer of God. They're seeing them as something to, a means to an end, something to help bring them some sort of pleasure. Okay? We know, that's how our brains are working when we're engaging in this. And Dr. John Fobert, he's a PhD at Oklahoma State who kind of studies this stuff as his job, says, the more we dehumanize someone, the more possible it is to commit violence against them. And he cites the connection in studies between watching porn and abuse. He says there are like, there are 50 peer-reviewed studies that show a link between watching porn and sexual violence. Okay? This stuff is, this stuff seems innocent, right? It seems like, oh, no one's being hurt, hurt by this stuff, but Jesus is challenging us to have a deeper view of the world than just that. And research in, you know, the modern era confirms all this for us. So, you know, lust, especially when normalized, as it so often is in our society, it either turns everyone into slaves or objects. Okay, is that liberating? Tell me, is that really liberating? Does that seem healthy to you? right? Should that, should that be normal? Just because it is normal, we might talk about it being normal. Do we really think that that represents the depth that Jesus is calling us to? No, obviously not. We've got to take this stuff seriously, Jesus is saying. We have got to go to it at its root. And again, Jesus stresses hyperbole here, okay? Or sorry, Jesus stresses urgency here by using hyperbole. So he says, Oh, if you really want to take care of this, you know, like you can cut off some, you know, get rid of some body parts. That will really help you to do it. Now, I think this is hyperbole. Basically, no one who reads this thinks that Jesus is actually telling them to go and cut their hands off or gouge their eyes out, okay? These are exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. Jesus does this quite often in his ministry. He, he seems to use it as like a very uh, a rhetor- to rhetorical effect. And he kind of, uh, you know, frames this all as a, as a kind of risk management, okay? Now, we know, I think we know he's not actually asking anyone to do this um, because there are no stories in Scripture of anyone doing this, okay? If, if 
Matthew, writing his gospel, wanted us to understand that Jesus was literally telling people to go cut their hands off or gouge their eyes out, he probably would have had a story. He probably would have said, in that moment, everyone in the crowd uh, cut their hands off, you know, or something like that. There would be a story about it, okay? Um, There are some stories of people cutting off other body parts later in Christian history. I'll let you guess which one um, in particular. But there are actually no stories that I have ever come across uh, that ever talk about anyone in Christian history taking this literally, like actually taking Jesus' command here literally. Okay, Basically, as, as far as we know, no Christians have ever taken this to be an actual command or recommendation. So I just want to be clear about that. But I also want to point out that that's not the point anyway. This literal sort of, you know, following of this rule that Jesus is giving us. If that's all we thought he was saying, we would be kind of, again, missing the point. The point is this. Be people who do what is necessary to not let sin take hold on you and do it urgently, even if it inconveniences you in some way. Better to be inconvenienced now than to suffer extreme consequences later of becoming enslaved and letting it take you away from the kingdom and towards judgment. If it means removing opportunities for lusting that might seem extreme to you, you might still have to do it. Okay? So as we've gone through these first two, uh, murder and, and, and adultery, um, we're starting to see how important it is to Jesus that we live as if this matters. Again, these are radical. These are hard things that he's actually calling us to do. And we see Jesus is calling us to a high standard, a radical one. Let's keep going. Let's talk about what he says about divorce here. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, now Jesus says, this isn't the only passage where both of Jesus and just in the Bible and the New Testament where the, the topic of divorce is touched upon, okay? And so this is not the place for a sort of full unpacking of a Christian view on divorce. So I'm sorry if that's kind of what you want right now. I'm going to try to limit it to this passage mostly. We'll wait into it a little bit here, um, but we won't get into the fullness of it. So I, I apologize if that's something you, you know, this is sparking that in you right now. Um, but Jesus here is referring to uh, uh, the one part of the, uh, of the Torah uh, that talks about divorce. It's in Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, we know from some of the other passages where Jesus talks about divorce that he believes it is legitimate. It's part of the law. It's something that Moses gave to the people of Israel. But by no means was it a positive development in Israel's history. It was given by Moses as a response, Jesus says in other places, to the hardness of heart um, of the people, but it's actually kind of an intrusion into the good created order. It's a concession that God made, but not something that he wanted to be built into the normal uh, operation of his creation. And so I think Christians can and do legitimately hold, you know, multiple divisions on divorce. It's not the kind of thing um, that, you know, we should be dividing over, right? There's, there's multiple positions we can hold uh, on this, um, But I think the one thing that is clear is that God is not a fan of divorce, um, if if necessary, and he holds a high standard for marriage. Um, 
Okay, and if, now just a few things here on this passage, again, without getting at everything we could here. The logic of adultery, again, could be a bit hyperbolic, right? It, it's, again, Jesus is trying to uh, get us to, you know, really shock us into seeing the world from a different lens. And so he uses strong language, kind of like him, you know, talking about cutting off your hand in the previous section. But even if it is, the point is this. It invites us to hold a vision of the sort of incredible importance of the marriage covenant in God's world. This is an incredibly important part of the way that God has designed the world. Not that it's something you need to do in order to serve or please God. Let's remember, Jesus himself was never married. And, uh, you know, there are other really important characters in the New Testament who never, never got married. But when it does happen, you need to know what you're walking into. The sex and intimacy that God reserves for marriage is not casual, nor is it without consequences when it's broken. We have to see the world this way. Jesus is challenging us. And, you know, Jesus gives us this concession on divorce still being legitimate because he knows sometimes stuff happens, right? He knows that the kingdom has come and he is challenging us to live within it, but he also knows it has not come in its fullness yet. And so, living all this stuff out is never as black and white as we might hope it would be. It's always in shades of gray. That's, that's the challenge of living in a broken world, okay? Things are not always uh, as easy as we might hope, and that's something we have to remember constantly as we are, uh, you know, thinking about this law, but the point stands. It's important for us to take this all very seriously. And further, I think we have to realize the point that he's making. It's actually more aimed at men in a very patriarchal society than it is to women. So notice Jesus says that, that what you do uh, to this woman, if you divorce her, is to cause her to commit adultery. Okay? And he says that you make her the victim of it if you get remarried. Okay? In this society, only men could initiate divorce. This is not something a woman could go do on her own. It had to be the man. And really, I mean, he could do it for basically anything he wanted to. It was very easy for men to get divorced in the ancient world. Jesus is, 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 is challenging the men specifically in the society. Uh, New Testament scholar Richard Hayes says, to dismiss a wife is to consign her to sin or to singleness without protection in a patriarchal society. Thus, Jesus calls husbands to a broader vision of the life of righteousness. They are to take full moral responsibility for maintaining their marriages faithfully. In the society where they held all the power, Jesus is saying, okay, fine then. You need to understand what it means for you to actually live that out. And you are not allowed to let your wife uh, sin in this way or to make her a victim of adultery by get, casually discarding her for any reason that you might want to. So a conclusion here, I think, to, to put a bow on these first three, um, the, the city on a hill, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the, the, the God calls us or Jesus calls us to be, take seriously that we are a city on a hill. The city on a hill is supposed to be a sign of hope in the world. And with divorce and all these other things we're talking about, all of them which are undoing something which is good, when that is happening in our community, it's a sign that we're moving in the wrong direction from living up to this high calling from God. Let's end with oaths here really quickly. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Just really quickly on this one, just a quick comment on it. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Basically, uh, Jesus is saying here that we ought to aspire to have the kind of integrity that should not lead us to appeal to something beyond it in order to make our word valid. Okay? Someone who needs to appeal to things beyond their own integrity um, has not cultivated the character that Jesus is calling us to have. Right? All we should simply need is to be able to say yes or no and to like, let that have weight. Be the kind of people that you say, yes, I'm going to do this, or no, I'm not, and everyone knows that word is valid. You do not need to appeal to other things in order to prop up your integrity for others. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, these deeper readings of the law, they are very radical, right? Again, like I said, the point is that they would stretch us, that they would seem beyond our grasp, that we are, you know, supposed to be shocked by them. And I think there's a chance that as you kind of read through these, as we talk about them, it might be cause for alarm, to kind of wonder what, you know, what horrible things this holy and perfect God might have planned for us if we fail in them in some way. Maybe you felt that, maybe, you know, today or reading through this at other times, okay? But I want to ease your heart here, okay? I do want to end with a note of hopefulness, um, kind of in, in the midst of this, this radical challenge. Okay? Jesus says, yeah, seek perfection, but notice that he couches that in God's perfection. Okay? He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? So what does it mean for God to be perfect? Let's reflect on that because I think it really matters. I think it means that while God wants our best, he takes on our worst at the same time. Okay? The Christian conviction, right, is that if you want to know what God is like, we start with Jesus. That's what it means that we're Christians, right? Christ is at the center of it. We think if we really truly want to know where to start, to know who the God of the universe is, we start with Jesus of Nazareth and his movement, which is written to us in, in, in the Gospels and in the rest of the Bible. We should be able to look at Jesus to see what makes God perfect then, if that's true, right? Well, we've seen one image of God revealed in Jesus here today, right? Urging us to be the kind of people that God's kingdom needs, stretching us radically to take the coming of his kingdom so seriously that we'll chase after a goal that we know we can't attain. This is an important image. It's important for us to see God in this way through by, by looking at Jesus. But take that image and let's set it aside another dominant, maybe the most dominant image of Jesus, And you'll get a sense of where his perfection starts. And that's Jesus hanging on the cross. That other image of who God is and what it means for us to look at him and understand his perfection, his holiness, means we have to understand that he is a God who is crucified, taking our sins, our failures, our inability to live perfect on himself so that we don't have to face the consequences of those things. Part of what makes God perfect is his grace, his mercy, his understanding, and his forgiveness for us for when we aren't perfect, taking sin on himself in perfect love. The call then is to be perfect and to live out these things we talked about and more, but it's not a rule we have to follow or else. It's a response that we have for a God who has welcomed us just as we are, failures and all, and simply asks us to follow him. All right, so let's move on to a time of question and response here. Um, do we have any questions? So, 
Yeah. Uh, are there any like English majors in the room? Any people who like poems? Okay, we have like one. As I said, a lot of people are going to like that graph earlier because we have a lot of engineers. Okay. Um, there is something about you know, good rhetoric that changes our hearts, right? If, if, you know, think about the difference between like a good communicator who comes to you and just throws a bunch of facts on a screen and how little that changes you or pushes you to actually respond to it, okay? It's, it's pretty easy to gloss over that. Uh, Jesus is a good communicator. We know that because people want to kill him, <laughs> Right? Okay, he was so good at communicating this stuff, it actually threatened a lot of the people around him who, you know, had reasons, who had vested interest in making sure someone, you know, didn't come along and, and sort of challenge their role in society, their interpretation of the law. Jesus was very good at challenging people um, through his rhetoric, through his symbolic actions. Like, he was a very good communicator because he got people to, you know, with a lot of, with a lot of brevity, with a lot of wit, he got people to go to the heart of an issue. And I think that's kind of what made him a good communicator. And so the hyperbole there, I think, is supposed to uh, challenge us to something deeper that we might just discard if it was, I don't know, a lecture, right? Like a boring lecture that you might get in college or something. So I don't know. That, that's, that's my thought. I think it, it, it got reactions out of people. Yeah. 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 And again, this is why I was like, this is not, I mean, I think this is the type of, this is a very sensitive topic. And it's, it's not one where there's one sort of, you know, one verse in the Bible that just gives us all we need to know about it, right? I think what we're given in Scripture is a sort of uh, a principle, like an understanding of the importance of marriage and how it's not a trivial thing to break that off. God does not like to see it broken off. Um, but I also think as we study it, we, we, we find that there are times where, you know, God allows for that to be undone. So the one exception that Jesus gives is for uh, sexual immorality. It's, it's, um, it's, not, it's not a word that means one thing in the Greek, porneia. It kind of means a, a bunch of different types of um, a bunch of different types of sexual misconduct. So it's kind of a generic word for that. So that's the concession Jesus makes. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to this Corinthian church about the same uh, kind of, about divorce. Like, they apparently had some questions about divorce. And he starts out by kind of, you know, drawing on the tradition of what Jesus had said. He kind of basically summarizes probably Mark 2, 10 to 12. Um, and he doesn't say anything about adultery, actually. Um, he kind of discourages remarriage, but he never says anything like throw these people out of the church. He's, he's very, he's very tender toned towards it. But then he's, he kind of, you see where you see where Paul is not just like a, a brain on a stick, right? I think we read him like he's this, you know, theologian, brain on a stick, but he's a, he was a pastor, right? And what we're reading from him in his letters is him being pastoral a lot of times. So he actually, after that, says, okay, so that's what Jesus said. Now, here's what I'm saying. He says, not I, but the Lord say this. And he talks about, a situation that was going on in the Corinthian church of people who were married to an unbeliever. And he says, if, you know, Jesus never said this, but if the unbeliever, like if you're married to an unbeliever, you, don't, you shouldn't initiate divorce, I don't think. But if they want to initiate divorce to, with you, that's okay. 
You are not in, you know, you are not going to be committing adultery if you uh, accept that and, and, and go on. He doesn't say anything about remarriage at all, actually, um, in that passage. I think it's actually his silence is kind of speaks quite a bit there. And this is like, we're getting into the weeds on this maybe a little bit. <laughs> uh, I apologize for that. But um, uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say anything about remarriage there. And, he, and that's actually in the same section where he talks about singleness. Paul thinks singleness is really good. This is what, one of the main points of that whole passage is about. But he says, like, if you are single and you are burning with passion, it's not a bad thing to get remarried. Is he saying, if that's you, if you're single now because you've been divorced by an unbelieving spouse, um, that, you know, that, that would fit you? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's a bit open-ended. Um, and I think that just goes to show that while, again, Jesus is challenging us to have a very radical view of marriage, to do whatever we can to make it work when it's in our power, that there are going to be times where maybe that is impossible. Um, and there is not necessarily an outright condemnation of that in Scripture. So, I don't know. There's, like I said, there's a lot of legitimate views on how to interpret these texts among Christians. I don't think there's one view necessarily, except that marriage is a really important to God, and we should take it as seriously as he does. Um, I think that's the one thing we can all agree on, and then we can have good, faithful, kind of scripture-informed conversation amongst ourselves after that as we get into sort of the messiness of life in a world where the kingdom is, is, is come, but it's not here fully. Yeah, I think we probably would put that on the table, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, any other questions? Okay, cool. Let's close in prayer, and, uh, and, and we'll go into a time of communion and worship as well. Um, so, we, we take communion every single Sunday as a, as a church here. Um, again, uh, if you are, are new here, we would love to have you join us in communion. We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus. One of the, you know, we do communion because Jesus said, hey, I want you to do this thing. Um, but there's, there's so much depth to it, again, just like what we talked about today. And one of the things I think we can reflect on is how, uh, again, this is the God who reveals his perfection to us in his perfect love, allowing himself to die on a cross and to have his, his body broken and his blood shed on our behalf so that we may, um, we may be made alive, or we may have the hope of forgiveness and mercy and grace, even though we fall short of what God calls us to do all the time. And so as you take communion today, reflect on that. You know, as maybe you're thinking about something uh, from the sermon, you're feeling radically challenged, and that's great, but I also want you to take communion to reflect on the fact that God accepts you and welcomes you as you are, uh, no matter what, um, because of what he's done on the cross for us. So uh, let's, let's pray. We're going to have a time of worship while we take communion. Um, and also, if you'd like prayer, we'll have someone in the back. Uh, Ted will be in the back. Um, Uh, willing to pray for you for anything, something from the sermon, something completely unrelated to it. Um, So anyway, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, you bring your kingdom to earth and your kingdom looks radically different than the world that we live in. 
And that is exciting for those of us who are weary of, of, of a broken world, a world full of sin that we have to inhabit every single day. And we are thankful that you um, come to bring a life that is far better, that challenges us in that. God, I pray that you'd equip us to be people who can uh, live up to, as far as we can, the standard that you put out for us, but also to know that um, when we fall short, which we certainly will all the time, um, you have welcomed us. Uh, your welcome cannot be undone for us, God, and you, are, you, you love us no matter what. Help us to, to, in that safe environment, to be able to grow more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.